This is the Politics and More podcast. I'm David Remnick. We have had 28 Democrats vying for the party's presidential nomination. Just over a week ago, Bernie Sanders seemed to be the clear frontrunner after three very strong primary performances. Then came some prominent withdrawals from the race and the resurgence, really the resurrection, of Joe Biden in last week's primaries. What will happen next is entirely up in the air. Joe Biden could keep riding this new wave of momentum, or we could be headed for a contested convention, something that we have not seen in many decades. Amy Davidson Sorkin is a political columnist for The New Yorker, and she's going to help us with a little civics refresher course. You know, there's a lot of states left to vote, and you've sewn up the nomination when you get 1,991 of the pledged delegates. When you cast your vote in a primary, you're not really voting for the candidate so much as you're voting for a delegate who's pledged to that candidate, as long as that person is still in the race when the convention comes. And then things can get really complex. You go to the convention with a certain number of delegates who are pledged to you. So everybody gets the convention and they vote. If nobody has a majority, then there's a second ballot. But on that ballot, there's another factor, the superdelegates. They don't get to vote on the first ballot. They get to vote on the second ballot. The superdelegates are Democratic insiders, members of Congress, senators, higher-ups in the party. There are nearly 800 superdelegates at the convention. And if they get to vote, it's a whole new ballgame. Now, Amy, does it go without saying that the superdelegates are going to be in greatest proportion on the side of Joe Biden as opposed to Bernie Sanders? If it was today, but who knows what might happen on the campaign trail? What could be revealed? What could come out? You know, a lot of the people who are the superdelegates, they voted, in a sense, ahead of Super Tuesday by coming out and endorsing Biden, getting their local networks activated for him. Um, Klobuchar did that, too. Apparently in Minnesota, she didn't just say that she wanted people to vote for him. She helped get out the vote. Uh, So is that a conspiracy or is that a party acting like a party and saying, you know, we know this person, we have this sense of how it's going to have this effect on races in this state. We're making a judgment about what the party stands for as well. Well, in your view, is it part of democracy or anti-democratic in some way? I mean, how purely democratic is it that for states that were in different ways not entirely representative of the whole country had so much say, we're New Yorkers, we're, it might be, this might be settled by the time it it gets to us. So there are a lot of ways that the democracy here is imperfect. When's the last time we had a contested convention? Um, I believe it was 1952 for the Democrats, 1948 for the Republicans, But, you know, both of those um, nominated a candidate on the third ballot. So it was contested, but it wasn't an epic contest. It wasn't like a Fletcher Nebel novel that goes to the 50th uh, ballot. Yeah, there is (laughs) the classic, the one that, you know, people dream of and has entered the realm of contested convention legend is the 1924 Democratic Convention, which went to, wait for it, 103 ballots. Um, <laughs> and neither one of the, the front runners got it. What happened? Who was, who was running against who? It was what William was McAdoo um, versus Al Smith. And there were a lot of, lot of issues, you know, prohibition, all, a lot of other issues. But the thing that broke the convention 
was the Ku Klux Klan. McAdoo wanted the Klan's support, and he basically killed uh, an anti-Klan plank in the party's platform. And that caused a shift where there are people who were opposed to him but might have reached some sort of deal, became just opposed to him on principle, and rightly so. And they just kept going until they finally, both of them withdrew. Who won the nomination and how did it end up in the general election? John Davis, congressman from West Virginia, who lost badly to to Calvin Coolidge. But it, it was probably better for American history that the Democrats didn't coalesce around somebody who was sort of cozy with the Klan. You know, even if you're going to go into the election divided, but believing something you actually believe in, that's worth it. I'd hasten to say that that's not the case with any of the candidates Mm. on the Democratic side right now, unless you really, 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 really feel strongly about democratic socialism. They're not, the party's not at a point where the divides are like so so existential, so much about the fundamental values of the party. Um, Biden's argument is, I'm the guy that can unite the party, bring in independence, win those counties that went over to Trump. I can do it. because maybe you can. Because I'm embracing. Sanders' argument of the case is, I will expand the electorate, that I will bring in new voters, many of them young, what do you think of those two cases? Both of them have have things to recommend them. I, I wouldn't mock either of them. Um, even in states that, that Biden won significantly, Sanders did, did well with, with younger voters. And those are going to be the voters who inherit the parties. They can't be alienated. Biden is going to have to make some choices about how he talks about, about Bernie. Remember, he's going to be propelled forward possibly by a lot of money from Mike Bloomberg, a man who on the debate stage called Bernie akin to a communist yeah. and a threat to the Which country. Which was ridiculous. You know, or, so is that what he wants the ads that are going to be in every state paid for by Bloomberg to be saying that the choices, how does Biden now talk about democratic socialism? You know, just it's not going to be enough now to just be the decent, kind human being who you'd rather have in the White House than Donald Trump. This is not going to be an easy election. Just, no, it's just, going to be hideous and ugly, it's, won't it? Yeah, and uh, it's just, we're still in a quite uncertain period, I think. This is not just going to be cruising along till November and then people decide whether they like the excitement of Trump or the niceness of Biden. It goes in a more fundamental way to what people want from politics. And... Uh, their tolerance for discord. Amy Davidson Sorkin, thank you so much. Thanks. Amy Davidson Sorkin is a staff writer and a political columnist for The New Yorker. The possibility of a contested convention highlights the long-standing state of tension in the Democratic Party between the moderate center and the more progressive left wing. We have, on the one hand, Joe Biden, who touts his ability to work across party lines. And then there's Bernie Sanders, a Vermont independent who identifies himself almost defiantly as a democratic socialist. I'm joined now by Michael Kazin, a historian at Georgetown University. Kazin has written extensively about the labor movement and populism. And he's the author of America Divided, the Civil War of the 1960s. Michael, how do you interpret the 
pretty bad results for Sanders on Super Tuesday through the prism of his declaration of himself as a democratic socialist. Does that hurt him? Um, what seemed to be an asset for many voters initially, um, and particularly his core uh, supporters, is that turning out to be a detriment to his campaign? Well, the problem is that he has an identity, which is very strong, and which attracts a lot of people, and authenticity, which attracts a lot of people. But that's also a drawback, because he is a protest candidate, a protest candidate against the his party's establishment, a protest candidate against the establishment of the country, the economic establishment, uh, the media establishment, the political establishment. And protest candidates, uh, of course, uh, demand that you do a lot. They demand that you believe that their protests can be turned into effective governance. And in this situation, of course, uh, as we all know, Democrats are primarily concerned, whatever their views, even if a lot of people who call themselves socialists, primarily concerned with the short-term aim of making sure Donald Trump doesn't get a second term. And that's, I think, the primary reason why he has, so far at least, uh, topped out at about 30, 35% of the, uh, of the Democratic electorate. Now, uh, he which says is, the theory of his case is that he will grow the electorate in ways that haven't been seen before. Is he floundering in that attempt? So far, he certainly is. So far, he's getting uh, no greater number of young people voting for him uh, this year as did in 2016, for example. And he's and older people are pretty much flocking to other candidates, especially uh, Joe Biden. You're a historian of the American left through the 19th and 20th centuries. You edit Dissent, which is a left-leaning political and cultural criticism magazine. You understand this field and its history. Is Bernie Sanders a socialist? And what does that mean? I think he's part of the socialist tradition. That is, he identifies with the idea that workers should have a lot more power, that uh, the government should help them get more power, that there should be as large a welfare state as possible. His hero used to be Eugene Debs, the uh, socialist who ran five times for president on the Socialist Party ticket. But really, more and more as he's evolved from his youth, uh, when he was a, a young socialist in the 1960s, he's become more of what Europeans would call a social democrat, though that term has never been really popular in this country. That is, he is not uh, in favor uh, of uh, doing away with capitalism, with entrepreneurship, uh, even with um, all rich people, though he doesn't like billionaires very much, but millionaires he's probably okay with. He's a millionaire himself, actually, because of his book publishing. And... Uh, I think he really wants a larger welfare state. He wants stronger trade unions. Um, he wants the kind of thing that he said often that uh, citizens of uh, Denmark and Finland, Sweden, and, and Germany take for granted. Now, you mentioned that Eugene V. Debs was his hero back when. The, the figure that he alludes to now all the time, even when he gave a kind of keynote address on socialism and democratic socialism, is none other than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, my understanding of Roosevelt, we could probably argue this all day and night, is that Roosevelt was a, not only a member of the Democratic Party, but he was a liberal. That's quite true. Really, it's from the New Deal uh, that modern liberalism, which has a much larger role for the central government uh, in the economy, uh, it's from that point that, that we think about uh, a definition of modern liberalism, which still has uh, right now, uh, 80 years later. So, 
I think by evoking uh, FDR, um, Sanders is, is trying to identify himself with what was a very popular current in American political life, the idea that government should take care of people, should help them find housing, should uh, uh, help them find a job if they need one, uh, should cover them with health care. And so he's, even though he called himself a socialist, he's able to identify with uh, the closest thing as we've ever gotten <laughs> to a social democratic uh, politics. But why, if his hero is FDR, does he refuse to identify himself as a liberal if FDR did? Is, is it a matter of branding, in a sense, or is it a matter of firm ideological conviction? question. I think liberalism has become associated since the 1960s with a very defensive kind of politics, especially a politics which is more identified with um, helping racial minorities, uh, LGBT people, uh, with feminism. And Bernie is very much about economic uplift, economic power uh, for working people. Identity is not his, his, his main concern. No. In fact, in fact, one of the reasons why in Super Tuesday he, he won only minority of black votes, I think, is because he is not um, identified with primarily focusing on issues that perhaps are most important to, uh, to, to, to black people especially. And also I think... Uh, you know, he's he's also uh, somebody who um, uh, wants to have his own identifier. <laughs> he wants to he wants to popularize the idea of democratic socialism. And if you're a liberal, then historically you see yourself as opposed to democratic socialism. He, that's that's going too far, and he he wants to go far. Now, when I was in college, um, I was very fond of a political organization called the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. <laughs> As if Irving Howe or Michael Harrington were somehow going to become president. It seemed a very marginal and, and distant thing and maybe a relic of the age that had come before me, which is the kind of 60s and 70s era. And now you see polls that particularly among young people, not only, but particularly among young people, that words like socialism and democratic socialism are attractive to a great number of people um, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, I think. Part of it starts with the Great Recession, certainly, which um, made young people especially feel that uh, maybe capitalism is not so great after all. Uh, part of it, too, ironically, I think, is the fact that Barack Obama, who a lot of pe young people liked, at least in 2008, young people on the left, was called a socialist. And there's all these uh, memes about him and you know images on the internet of uh, Obama standing next to Lenin and Marx and Lenin uh, and, and, yeah, but, and... But but one thing Barack Obama never called himself was a socialist. No, but... He was called a socialist by his enemies. I know, but language and uh, political identifiers work in, in unusual ways sometimes. And I think the fact that Obamacare specifically was called socialism by a lot of Republicans made some young people say, well, you know, Obamacare is not enough, but uh, we certainly like the idea of national health insurance, which Obamacare is supposed to uh, institute, so let's go further. And also I think there's um, uh, a sense really, and this is true in Europe as well as the United States, that the, the uh, uh, more traditional uh, kinds of political philosophies, whether they are conservative republicanism of the Reagan era or a kind of liberal democratic uh, view that Obama had, that they have failed. And so a lot of young people want something which will really be a break with a system they feel has not served them, which they feel, you know, they of course are very critical of what's happening with the environment and the idea that capitalism is not going to solve the problem of uh, of climate change, uh, you need a much more collective, uh, government-driven uh, set of solutions to that 
so a lot of a lot of young young people say, well, let's try something different. Let's try something really different <laughs> from capitalism. And if we can get uh, a president elected like Bernie Sanders who agrees uh, with those aspirations, that'll be wonderful. Let's look to the future now. You wrote an op-ed in the New York Times where you said that Bernie Sanders has already won, arguing that whether he captures the White House or not, he's transformed the Democratic Party. What did you mean by that specifically in policy terms? Well, I think you look at the debates that the Democrats have had, these long, <laughs> somewhat boring debates. Uh, there will be too many more of them, I hope. Uh, you find that on health care, for example, uh, Every candidate on the stage, uh, even the more conservative ones uh, like uh, Michael Bloomberg, were saying they were for a robust public option or Medicare for all. All of them wanted some debt relief. All of them supported laws to make it easier to organize labor unions. All of them talked about taking much more aggressive action about climate change. So in these ways, I think uh, the kind of platform that Bernie Sanders ran on in 2016 and is running on this year has it's moved the party to the left. It's made the party, gotten the party closer to what a social democratic party in Europe would stand for. Uh, and in that sense, as the headline, which I didn't write in the Times, said, he's already won. He's already transformed the party. The only way I think uh, he won't transform the party is if he gets nominated and loses the way George McGovern lost in 1972. It gets wiped out. It's wiped out. But I don't, I don't expect that to happen because we're a very different country than 1972. There are states which will never vote for a Democrat and states that will never vote for a Republican like California, like Maryland, like uh, New York State, uh, for example. And he's going to win those states. Even if he lost by 10 points in the popular vote, he'd still win those states. So it won't be, it wouldn't be a blowout the way it was for McGovern. I, I won't reduce you as, a, as a, an esteemed scholar to a, 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 a pundit in my, <laughs> in my realm, but after Tuesday and going forward, do you expect him to get the nomination? Uh, I like to say, as an historian, I don't have to predict the future. So <laughs> I, I only have to explain the past, which is difficult enough. <laughs> you're, you're, you're ducking it. I think, look, I think that uh, both Sanders and Biden are weak candidates in many ways, uh, unfortunately, I say, as a Democrat. And um, they both have many liabilities. And... Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, after all, uh, there have been close races uh, in the recent past Democrats have had where we didn't know whether in 2008, whether Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton were the nomination. For a while, it looked like Hillary Clinton would. And then Barack Obama started winning some primaries and caucuses. Then Hillary Clinton came back and won some. I, I don't really know, David. I think that um, we'll have to see what happens with these larger states. And we'll have to see also if Elizabeth Warren supports uh, Bernie Sanders in a major way. And that could help convince some people uh, on the progressive side who have been leery about uh, Bernie Sanders, perhaps partly because he called himself a socialist, uh, to be more supportive of him. Given Super Tuesday, where does Bernie go from here, do you think? I think he has to enlarge his base. How does he go about doing that? When it, his message is so consistent, his style is so consistent, um, you can't fault him for uh, being all over the map. Um, how does he broaden his base? I think he has to assure people. I think he has to find some way within himself, and this is not really part of his personality, to make people feel that he is not going to uh, do away with things they care about. Uh, for example, he could talk about a transition to Medicare for All rather than saying Medicare for All is all we're going to say. We're not going to ever compromise with it. But, but then you, forgive me, but then you're talking about Medicare for All 
<laughs> for those who want it, or whatever Pete Buttigieg used as the term. Then he goes goes back on his consistency. Yes, but I think his core followers will will go along with that. His core followers uh, are, especially when if the two candidate race between Bernie and Joe Biden, they're not going to go to Joe Biden. <laughs> so so th- th- they trust him enough, I think, to make certain changes. They realize. You know, he's running for the most powerful office in the world, and he's going to have to compromise to a certain degree. The question is whether he compromises on uh, on his ends as opposed to how you get to his ends. Will Bernie Sanders embrace Joe Biden if Joe Biden wins and vice versa? They've both said they'll support whoever the candidate is. Uh, what's really matters, of course, is, their is whether their supporters the will. Yeah. yeah. And there and there's a problem, you know, uh, a divided party, a, a party that's divided uh, at the convention— never has won in American politics. And that's a real problem. Michael Kazin, thank you so much. Thank you. Historian Michael Kazin of Georgetown University. His book, America Divided, about the 1960s, is now out in paperback. <laughs> 